You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Colossians. Here's Nate. At this point in Paul's letter, I think the Colossians would have asked two distinct questions. Question number one, they might have asked as a result of what Paul had said in chapter 3, verse 11, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. So perhaps a question that they would ask is, okay, if Jesus has eliminated in one sense those distinctions, and we no longer look at each other as Greek or Jew or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, then the question they would ask is, what about the roles that we previously operated in? Wives, husband, children, parents, servants, masters. A second question that they might have asked is given from what Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 17. He said, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so a second question might have been, Paul, could you give us some examples of how and where in our words and our deeds, we can do everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's really what follows here in these next few verses is Paul dealing with the household and answering questions concerning the household, the Christian household, the way it should operate and how it operates under the Lordship of Christ and how even though we are one in Christ, there are still distinct roles inside of the home. That's why Paul begins in verse 18 and 19, speaking to the spouses, saying, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, one of the first things that I want to mention uh, concerning this passage is actually something that is not found in this passage. We're going to read of Paul speaking to wives, husbands, children, children, fathers, uh, servants, and masters. And it would be tempting for us to think that Paul has forgotten a major swath of society, that he's forgotten about the single state. A couple of things to say about that, however. Paul here in this section was dealing with the example of a Christian household. All right, so he's dealing with each of the individual roles inside of that ancient uh, first century household that had now been submitted to the leadership of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I should say, Paul was a single man and had much to say overall to people who find themselves in the single state. Uh, Paul loved his singleness. He used his singleness and often spoke to those who were single. Uh, Much, of course, of the book of Colossians is written to all believers, including those who find themselves in a state of singleness. Now, in the Bible, there are six categories of singleness. 
Uh, you've got men and women, often very young, prior to their first marriage. You have widows, and by implication, widowers. You have eunuchs who serve in the courts of kings and those in authority and the like. Uh, you have those as well in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament era, but partly perhaps in 1 Corinthians 7, who shouldn't marry due to some kind of illness or economic difficulty or persecution. You have, fifthly, those who have been previously divorced, and then you have, number six, those who are divinely called to at least a season, if not a lifetime, of singleness. Paul spoke of singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as a gift potentially from God. He said each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And the previous comment that he made was, I wish that all were as I myself am. And what he's alluding to is singleness. He says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. And I think in one sense, we can praise the Lord that Paul was a single man. It's not that it would have been impossible for him to do the things that he did uh, as a married man, but likely not probable and potentially actually he could have crossed the line into uh, being irresponsible in the responsibilities God had given to him. Had he been a married man, I think there were certain boats that perhaps he shouldn't have gotten on, certain conversations and decisions that he should not have uh, gotten into or, or made. And, uh, you know, it would have just been a very difficult life for this man had he been a married man, especially with children that he had to care for and provide for. Instead, he was very movable. He was an inexpensive man. He could work in building tents to pay his bills. He could travel wherever. He could go to wherever. And instead of having to write home to a wife and children, he could write to the churches. And so Paul used his singleness for the honor and the glory of God. Unfortunately, this is where many people in our modern era make an error. They use their singleness to spend it upon themselves when Paul clearly used his singleness to spend it upon the Lord and his kingdom. Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 19 that there would be those who would make themselves eunuchs, single, so to speak, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, uh, there are great heroes of the faith who have been single. Paul was one. John the Baptist seems to have been a single man. Jesus, of course, was single as well. And they weren't single so that they could spend it on their own desires, but in one sense, so that they could give more of their lives for the kingdom of heaven. In one sense, to suffer more than would have been appropriate had they been a married person. This is not to say that a married person isn't called to live any kind of radical life or to be persecuted, but someone who is single has a flexibility attached to their life that as a believer they should use for the Lord. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 32 to 35. He said, when you're single, your concern is 
how to please the Lord and how to have undivided devotion to the Lord. So I wanted to mention that because Paul doesn't in this particular text for great reasons, but sometimes as we go through a text like this, we wonder, hey, what about the single state? I think it's good to honor those who are unmarried, to love those who are unmarried. And if you are in an unmarried state, use your singleness for the honor and the glory of God. Adolescence is getting longer and longer and longer in the cultures in which we live. Uh, You come of age, you go through puberty, and then you have this long gap of time before many people get married. Use that time for the honor and the glory of God. This is not a time for you to fall under the bondage and temptation of sin and to spend it on your own desires, but to give, give, give. When you do, by the way, that's great practice for marriage. Laying down your life, that's what you'll be called to do in all of your life if the Lord ever does bring a husband or a wife into your life. This is evidenced in what Paul said here in Colossians 3, verse 18. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now that word submit is a word that definitely needs a bit of definition. You could say it like this. It means to put first. Just just the word itself out of its context. It means to put first, to subject oneself. You can use this word in the original language to describe obedience, subordination, uh, to be ruled by someone else. Now the interesting thing to me, however, is that he could have used a different word had he meant just a childlike obedience to a parent. Uh, but, but in this context, Paul will in just a moment say, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And he will not use the same word that he uses here for wives in their relationship to their husbands. I think what that indicates is that in the mind of Paul, it was a different kind of leadership, a, a father and a, and a mother to a child. That was a different brand of leadership than a husband to a wife. I think another thing to remember in the context is that this submission directive from Paul is always embedded in a context where the husband is exhorted as well, told to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to lay down his uh, life for his bride. So an intense exhortation uh, for the husband. This exhortation to wives to submit to their husbands is never given in isolation. It's always in a context where husbands are exhorted in a very intense way as well. In one sense, this submission word is a military word. Speaking of the arrangement of rank, to arrange under, to come under. So what this signifies is a, a threefold thing. Let me say a couple things that it does mean and that it doesn't mean before I define it more sharply for you. Number one, it does indicate that order is still present. Remember that first question? Hey, if Christ is all and in all, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no barbarian, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Does that mean that inside the marriage relationship, uh, there's just a 
a uh, you know no role so to speak there's no leadership and the previous roles are now done away with well Paul is here announcing that no there is still an order to marriage still an order to family and still an order in work this does not however and this is important to remember, signal some kind of inferiority. All it's referencing is order, but not quality. Uh, we know this from places like 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul said there, he said, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And what you have here is Paul illustrating the proper order. You have God the Father, God the Son, you have a husband, and you have a wife. Now the head of the Son, God the Son, is God the Father. The question we would of course ask is, does that mean that the Son is somehow not a co-equal with the Father. No, the reality is they're both eternal. They are God. They are one in the same. They are the triune, uh, part of the triune Godhead. That's how equal, co-equal they are. But still, for all of eternity, there was a role where the Son came under the leadership of the Father. The same is true inside of a marriage. The husband and the wife are equal to one another. They are on the same level as far as quality before God is concerned. But one is called to operate in the role of leadership primarily inside of the home, and that is the husband. And so here a wife is encouraged to submit to her husband. Now another thing that this is not is it is not some kind of pass for bullying or brutality. All right, there is a context to it. A husband is to be loving and gentle and kind. This does not create some kind of weird environment where a husband is in ownership of his wife and can abuse her physically, emotionally, or in any other kind of way. So if I were to define this word, I would say it like this, inside of a marriage, this way. It means no inferiority from one to the other, but the wife makes a choice to place herself as an equal underneath another equal, her husband, in order that there can be order and function in the marriage and family. No inferiority, but the wife makes a choice to place herself as an equal underneath another equal, her husband, in order that there can be order and function in the marriage and family. And so it's a relational kind of thing where a wife chooses and says, you know what, I want to come under the leadership of this man. It doesn't indicate a total silence. Uh, in a healthy and good marriage, you're going to have conversation. You're going to have discussion. I know for me with Christina, I have the utmost respect for my wife. You know, Paul told the believers in Ephesians 5 verse 33, he said, husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands. And what I've found in marriage is that oftentimes, oftentimes the husband has an easy time respecting his wife and the wife has an easy time loving her husband. 
But what we need is actually the opposite. I need to love Christina. The respect is there and good, but it comes naturally. I need to work on being a loving man towards my wife. And she loves me very naturally, but she needs to cultivate and develop that respect for me because it's just one of those things that is so valuable to a man. But I innately respect Christina. I respect her wisdom, her knowledge. I respect her, uh, pers her perspective on things, her experiences, her work ethic, her drive. And so for me, I'm always curious about what she desires, what she's thinking. But uh, so in a good relationship, these things will be flowing. But a wife is to uh, wholeheartedly follow her husband. Perhaps that would be a better way for us in our modern context to understand it, to wholeheartedly follow your husband. This is not the cultural norm. This is not politically correct, but it is very New Testament, repeated again in Ephesians chapter 5. It is the order that God has designed. So as a wife, listen to your husband. Know his passions, his gifts, his dreams, his talents, his callings, and be supportive of your husband. And if you're a single woman, take heed uh, to who you marry. And think twice before you enter into that marriage with them because you have to follow. You're called to follow that man. Now, in verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, for us, perhaps we think that we understand the definition of love uh, very easily and very quickly. We needed a larger and longer description or definition of what submission means because it's so hard for us to grasp in our modern culture, in our modern mindset. But here, uh, love, I think it is something that we do not understand uh, as well as we think we do. Uh, Paul here is not talking about a mere emotion. Instead, he's talking about a choice to give tender care, affection, uh, a fully orbed and well-rounded uh, Christian, sexual, natural, tender love towards a wife. It's sacrificial. It is self-giving. And uh, in one sense, this was more radical in the culture that Paul was speaking to than uh, we, we often imagine. There was no other code that we've discovered from the ancient world that encouraged this kind of behavior from a husband towards his wife to self-sacrificially love his bride. Again, repeated in a five, Ephesians 5 verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now I think of the way that Jesus loved his bride loved the church for one he left a position of comfort didn't he he came out of heaven in order to incarnate and a good husband will leave a position of comfort leave, uh, sacrifice financially uh, he'll give gifts he'll prioritize he will sacrifice and leave his own position of comfort for his bride Jesus came out of heaven for his bride and sometimes we have a difficult time 
giving up the remote control for our bride. Jesus is well incarnated for his church. In other words, he became flesh, became a man in order to identify with us, sacrifice his life for us, but in one sense to understand us. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he gets us, he understands us. Peter said in 1 Peter 3 verse 7 that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. You cannot incarnate in the sense of becoming a woman, but you can attempt to grow and learn and understand your wife like Jesus did everything he could to understand you. I also love that Jesus loved a church that did not yet exist. He saw something beautiful in the church that he, through his love, drew out of them rather than pointing the finger and expecting something to happen. He drew a beautiful thing out, out of them. And I think a good husband can do this for his wife, drawing a beautiful thing out of what is going on inside of her. And Jesus spent time with his church and he died ultimately for his church and a good husband will love his wife in this death self-sacrificial kind of way you'll have wayward children sickness mental sickness depression baby blues friendship drama and you as a husband will lay down your life and love your wife like christ loved the church notice that paul so paul also says do not be harsh with them, which I think is one of the most common crimes for a husband to commit. He becomes embittered with his bride and has an expectation upon her that is unrealistic and so unhealthy. Now in verse 20, Paul goes on and he speaks to the children, which in one sense gave them a validation in that culture that was very uncommon. Uh, for him to actually address them and speak to them was just by itself coming from an apostle and that culture communicated a value system that was new in that ancient world, that these children were valuable and wonderful. And this word, word for children can refer to almost any age group, but it seems that Paul is dealing here with children that are still inside, living inside that household. They are still under the authority of their parents. He gives them one exhortation. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now this is interesting because thousands, if not millions of words have been spent on describing what it's like or what a Christian uh, parent should do and what child raising should be like. I for one have even written myself about child raising and parenthood and what it means to be a father. It's not that I'm against it, it's just that I love how Paul is able to, in one phrase, boil it down to a very simple thing. Here's, if you were to say one thing, Paul, that a child needs to learn in their formative years, Growing up in a Christian household, it's this. They need to learn obedience. Listen, a child needs to learn obedience because a person needs to learn obedience. We, we live under authority for our entire lives. We have to do things that we don't feel 
like doing. And when a child is able to master the art of obedience, well, they're going to succeed and do great things in life. They will know how to be under authority, which is so important, but they'll also learn how to be in authority, how to lead well, and how to uh, you know, hold that authority so lightly and to, to uh, really respect it. And so uh, teaching your children obedience. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where uh, so many parents are obedient to their children rather than the other way around. Uh, this isn't to mean that we're to have some kind of uh, bullying of our children or anything like that. It just means that you are the firm leader of your home. You're not to beg your children, plead with your children, manipulate your children, or have a guilt-based version of parenting where you're just living in constant fear that you're going to mess them up somehow if you don't uh, succumb to their whims and wishes. The reality is that your children need to learn about obedience. So hold a standard before them that you agree upon with your spouse if you are married. Hold them to it and teach them how to obey you rather than you buckling and obeying them. This will serve them incredibly well in life. They'll go to school and be taught by a teacher. They'll submit to, uh, you know, the police and uh, a boss and, and a professor and an instructor. There is so much authority in their lives. And if they learn it from you, they will function so well in culture and society. But then Paul goes on in verse 21 and says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now let's think for a second about this title that Paul gives. First of all, isn't it fascinating here that he doesn't speak to parents, but he speaks to fathers, uh, to fathers. This is a title that men share with God. Now, some people are called to a fatherly role, even though it's not their biological function. Sometimes a step-in, fill-in man will marry a woman who's been neglected by another man, left by another man, and he will become the father. Sometimes a mother will have to operate in a fatherly role at times herself as a single mom. But fathers are of, a, of great importance to their children. We're not to relinquish this calling to anybody else. A father defines their children. A father provides refuge to their children. A father speaks into their lives. A father is to give them a place of safety. And children are safe with a father who fears the Lord. And the one instruction that Paul gives to them is he says, do not provoke your children. Do not provoke your children. Do not irritate them, exasperate them. Do not make them bitter. And I've found that Fathers can provoke their children when they lack a true walk with God. They name the name of Christ, but there is no evidence personally, privately before the Lord. In short, they are living a hypocritical life. Number two, I've found that fathers can provoke their children to wrath when they do not delight 
in their children. God the Father, Proverbs 3, verse 12, delights, uh, reproves his children whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. We are to delight in our children. And when your children don't think that you appreciate them or love them or are curious about them, uh, then they will often be provoked. And then thirdly, when a father lacks discipline, he sets unrealistic standards and expectations. He's overprotective, excessively, uh, you know, disciplining his children or has a total lack of standards and is overindulgent towards his children. Uh, that lack of good and godly discipline can so provoke a child. And so he says, don't do that lest they become discouraged and lose heart. So the household, the family. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.